stay tuned for Corporations and Democracy. First you told us only through you could we know God, and if we dared to question, he wouldn't spare the rod. For you we worked the soil, for you we dug the moors, for you we shed our blood and fought so many pointless wars. Now you try to tell us there's nothing we can do. You say the world around us belongs fairly to the few, but about six billion people no doubt will agree this world is our home. Not your property, it's the commons, our right of birth. And you who would enclose the land all around the earth, our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain. You who sacrificed the public good for your private gain. With our sweat we built the railroads, built cities on these shores, but because you own the money, you see that it's all yours. We laid the phone lines and the pipelines, and then right before our eyes, you see these things are taxes paid for. You now will privatize. Privatize the hospitals, privatize the schools, privatize the prisons for all those who break your rules and preparing for the day. When all the wells run dry, you see own the very rain that falls down from the sky, but it's the commons, our right of birth. You who sacrificed the public good for your private gain. You claim to own the harvest with your terminator seeds. You claim to own the genomes of every animal that breeds. You claim to own our culture and the music that we play. And with each song that we download to your coffers we must pay. You'd even own my name and you'd say it's for the best. Maybe you'll let us on your radio or our songs can pass your test. You own country, you own western, you say you've given us a choice. You may own the airwaves, but you'll never own my voice. It's the commons, our right of birth. And you who'd own the music all around the earth. Our future is your downfall when you cut this ball and chain. The opinions expressed on corporations and democracy are those of our guests and hosts and not necessarily of the management of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Good evening and welcome to Corporations and Democracy for November 17th, 2022. This is the program that examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with true democracy. I'm Steve Scalmanini with co-host Annie Esposito. Today's program will be in two halves. In the second half hour of the program, we'll be talking with Judith Ehrlich, the director of the movie The Boys Who Said No, Draft Resistance and the Vietnam War, which will be shown this Saturday evening at the Anderson Valley Grange. For the first half hour, we'll discuss vote suppression in Georgia in last week's midterm election and in the upcoming runoff. With us is Greg Pallast well-known for his investigative reports for The Guardian and BBC Television, and author of New York Times bestsellers, including The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Greg has been exposing Jim Crow voting practices for over 20 years, since he exposed the fraud in the 2000 presidential election in Florida that gave us a president named Bush instead of Gore, who actually got more votes. Since then, he has exposed other schemes that Republicans have used to suppress the vote in particular states, including the infamous interstate cross-check scam. 
Well, Greg just re- returned from Florida days ago, where he saw firsthand the current edition of vote suppression. So today will not be deja vu all over again from uh, a few years ago when we hosted him after the runoff uh, in uh, December, it was, of, um, I'm sorry, in early January, two years ago, also in Georgia. So today is about the new means of vote suppression in Georgia, which occurred just last week in the election for the U.S. Senate and is underway right now for the runoff election on December 6th. So, let's have a look at vote suppression in Georgia in last week's midterms election and in the upcoming runoff. Greg Pallast, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Glad to be with you again. Uh, just arrived back from Georgia. I'll be going turning right around because we have a runoff between the Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock, who was elected last year to finish uh, uh, a uh, term of another senator, uh, the first Democrat in quite a long time out of Georgia, uh, and the very first African-American senator. He won alongside John Ossoff, who's a Jewish-American. This is out of supposedly redneck Georgia, and mm-hmm. Joe Biden beat Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And the GOP's response uh, after the Democratic sweep of the state was not just not just Democratic sweep, we're talking very, very progressive senators out of there, and even a, even a huge increase in the gerrymandered state legislature. So in response, the Republican-controlled legislature, while I still had control, uh, passed a bill signed by Governor Brian Kemp, the guy who supposedly just beat Stacey Abrams in, uh, in uh, uh, this month's election. Governor Brian Kemp assigned a bill called SB202. And SB202 is 98 pages of what the NAACP correctly calls Jim Crow 2.2. And among the uh, there's there's a heck of a lot of uh, it's 98 pages of impediments to voting, obstacles, uh, an obstacle course, especially for young people and voters of color. I know you're shocked to hear that. Um, and um, and among the 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 worst codicils of 98 pages of Jim Crow suppression tactics is a, a single word, which was devastating. The word is unlimited. Georgia law, like many old um, segregationist states, has a law that allows any voter to challenge the right of any other voter to vote. Don't count, you know, Joe Black's vote. This was a system started by the Ku Klux Klan, uh, who ran a candidate in 1946, Eugene Talmadge, who won by literally removing almost every black voter in Georgia by having Klan members fill out a piece of paper challenging their right to vote. Well, they don't do that anymore in Georgia. They don't fill out pieces of paper to stop black people from voting. Rather, they submit thumb drives because the new law changed the right to challenge a voter to the right to challenge an unlimited number of voters. Unlimited. And when I say limited, I mean unlimited. (laughs) Uh, We have one woman, and I have a film about this, which you can see for gratis as long as the Georgia runoffs are on. Um, 
There's no other way to see it. It's not commercial. There's no commercial release yet. That'll be next year. But we're having a preview release because of the Georgia runoffs. And we had one woman you'll see in my film. It's called Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman. Hitman. And this uh, woman, Pamela Reardon, challenged, personally challenged 32,000 voters. 32,000 voters. And she handed in a thumb drive. And uh, so I met with Ms. Reardon, who not incidentally was running for state vice chair of the Republican Party. And altogether, we have over 100 vigilantes. Every single one, I'm not being partisan about this, every single one's a Republican. That's just the facts, Mm ma'am. They've challenged 149,000 voters. She challenged 32,000. She's the champ. And I asked her, uh, so I started showing her pictures of people. I said, do you know these people? No, I don't know these people. You ever (laughs) called them? Don't know anything about them? No, I don't know anything about them. But you challenged their right to vote. Now, the thing is, uh, she uh, she asked me to leave. Her house, rather vehemently, <laughs> and she's. But and I didn't argue because she, her, her husband lunged at me, and she's armed to the teeth. She had an automatic. <laughs> she had an assault rifle loaded next to the door. She had ammo boxes stacked up to the ceiling. <laughs> this is a major party operative, just mm-hmm. so you know. And then that's not all. Then we went to Columbus down south in Georgia, Columbus, Georgia, which is near Fort Benning. We got one guy. Who challenged four thousand voters? Again, they don't use the white. They don't use fill out sheets of paper. They've gone from the clans white sheets to spreadsheets. She literally handed in a thumb drive because she said thirty-two thousand names was too expensive for her to even print out. Mm-hmm. And um, she didn't call a single one, speak to anyone, know anything about any of them. She just put in their names. In addition, so this guy put in four thousand names, including including the name. Uh, of a uh, of remember he's at Fort he's right there at Fort Benning, so he was challenging soldiers, African American soldiers who were assigned overseas or other military bases in the states. I'm not making this up, including uh, Major Gamaliel Turner, career military uh, contractor, and um, he was actually assigned to. Fort Wainimi here in um, California. He was working on a weapon for uh, an anti-tank weapon for the Ukrainians. And uh, so um, uh, this this schmuck challenged his vote. Now, I say schmuck. He's actually, I should just say he prefers to be called a doctor. That is Doc Holliday. He actually dresses like a vigilante. This is kind of his shtick. Can call himself the Georgia storyteller, and he dresses up in cowboy boots, cowboy hat, um, and he has an old-fashioned uh, six-gun. It was a new gun, pearl-handled six-gun, just like Doc Holliday, and it was loaded when we met. And what he didn't know was that when he came to our house, I said, "You challenged uh, four thousand voters." He says, "Yes," including Major Gamaliel Turner. Yes. Did you have, do you know who these people are? You said that they don't live in they don't live in Columbus anymore. That they shouldn't vote. Uh, do you know whose house you're in? He said no. He said you're in the house of Major Gamaliel Turner, the uh, the guy you said didn't uh, doesn't live here. And by the way, here he is. <laughs> and I brought him. <laughs> and now I, I didn't add the what maybe, but you just assume. 
because you know America and Georgia, uh, Major Turner is African-American, as are almost all the people who've been challenged. are either African-American or young, low-income people. Where they, By the way, they got these lists from this group out of Texas, um, True the Vote. Mm-hmm. And some of you follow politics, may know True the Vote as the characters who put together that phony film, 2,000 Mules, saying that there was massive vote fraud. So these so-called vote fraud hunters were challenging tens of thousands of people. Now, we were able, through our work, to get most of those challenges rejected, uh, even though that could create other problems, because if you reject the challenges, the governor can remove you as a voting official, and he did. The number one expert on voting in Georgia is uh, generally roundly considered um, Helen Butler, of, and she was on the Morgan County Elections Board, and they and uh, Kemp had her fired immediately again under SB 202. That's what's going Kemp on. Kemp, the governor in Georgia. He's Kemp. Now Brian Kemp is the Republican governor, yep. who, if you'll remember, because uh, you had me on before mm-hmm. years ago, when in 2018 he ran against Stacey Abrams mm-hmm. and supposedly won, but that was after he removed. Are you ready? Half a million voters. For the voter rolls, half a million voters. That many, I didn't. From the voter rolls, we went through that again. He claimed these people. He's just like the doc, the fake doc holiday. Mm-hmm. He claimed these people no longer lived at their voting addresses. We hired the Palace Investigative Fund. This is Greg Palace. Uh, we hired the uh, the top experts in address location. You know them as the guys from you know that work with Google and mm-hmm. Dell and Amazon. They know where you live, and we gave them the list of the people that were removed by Brian Kemp. They went through and they said three hundred forty thousand one hundred, three hundred forty thousand one hundred forty-four of these people. And here are their names. Here are the names of people who have not moved from their voting addresses, that were removed wrongly, including, by the way, and you'll see in my film. Martin Luther King's 92-year-old cousin, mm-hmm. who was going to vote for her 50th, her 50th year of voting, and they threw her out of the voting station. 92 years old. Mm-hmm. I've got that on camera. I didn't. Know, I was at this voting station where they're throwing out one person after another, and I knew some of those people were going to be thrown out. That's why. So I was at this voting station, which, by the way, is in the neighborhood where Martin Luther King lived, and um, and I was there. Just happened to be there when King's cousin was thrown out. Um, you know, and uh, Stacey Abrams said, based on basically palace research, I'm not going to accept the results. He said, you know, I have no choice. I'm not going to be inaugurated because Brian Kemp set the rules, removed the voters. So under George's laws, he won. No question. But he wrote the laws. He abused the laws. And I will not be governor, but I'm not going to accept this, the results. I will not. That was courageous, and that really gave a big push to the voting rights movement. And unfortunately, she was, you know, cut off at the knees just before the vote this time by um, one of her enemies, Joe Biden, who said, don't vote for anyone who won't accept the election results. So that was clearly a slam at Stacey Abrams, and it was very effective. <laughs> it cost her a lot of votes. I did not hear that um, on the news. I'm sorry. Yeah, so... Um, but, you know, I mean, you can, you know, 
Gaga Gramps, you can't necessarily blame him for everything he says. Uh, so I won't attack him. But um, so if you want to see the film, if you want to see the vigilante, if you want to see Doc Holliday, <laughs> the lady in red chase me out of her house, you want to take a look at her assault rifle, um, uh, go to vigilantemovie.com. I'm going to repeat that vigilantemovie.com it's about it's it's up now then we're going to take it down uh, it's free you cannot buy it you cannot stream it nowhere it is only for people who uh to help us in georgia and the and i know that most of your listeners aren't in georgia so it's a bit of a cheat here so i'm gonna it's gonna be an honor system if you watch the film for free i ask you one thing contact someone you know in georgia or some site in Georgia and say, watch the film, or here's what we learned. So that you're participating in this special Georgia. It's a Georgia release, but as you can well imagine, it's pretty hard to say you can't watch the film if you only live in Georgia. But I want people to see this because, you know what? It ain't just Georgia. No, it sure isn't. It's, it's, all, all, all. it's not just Georgia. And these Georgia tricks, like the Vigilante Voter Challenge, are spreading all over the country. Is it nine states now that are following this uh, Georgia voting integrity law idea? Yeah, this, uh, I forgot what the, uh, what he, what the, your governor camp calls it, but it's uh, a giant it's, air quotes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and uh, but the important thing is that, like I say, Jim Crow 2.0. Everyone just calls it SB 202. But again, it's not. If it were just George, I'd say okay. I wouldn't even be. You know, I would say it's too bad what they're what they're doing, and I'd be concerned about whether Senator Warnock got, gets reelected. Now, understand, I'm not. It's not like I'm endorsing. Raphael Warnock uh, over his opponent, Herschel Walker. That's up to the people of Georgia. But apparently, Brian Kemp, the governor, and his GOP cronies don't trust the people of Georgia to make the right decision. They don't trust them. They think that if you, if you don't put in these restrictions and you don't put in these challenges, my God, what will the people do if they're not controlled? That's so. My whole the point here is that you're going to learn how Jim Crow works, and these tricks are spreading to Texas, Arizona, Florida, you name it, and it's and it'll be 2024 is their real aim. Yes, I was. I wanted to ask you about that. What is this setup now? How uh, how is this all going to come down on 2024? It's really bad news because unless. We fight it and expose it, which again, uh, you know, you go to, by the way, if, if you can get down, you can always go to my website to find your way to the free film, vigilantemovie.com, or you go to gregpalace.com. If, if you don't know me, it's G-R-E-G, P-A-L-A-S-T, gregpalace.com, or vigilantemovie.com, and it's a little more than an hour it's weirdly fun. It's also very dark. Yeah, I really like to. 
I, I want to jump up and down a little bit about your film, too, because it is really excellent. It's got the rigorous research behind it, but very powerful testimony, and you're such a perfect storyteller to bring out the important points. I, one of my favorite parts is where you were discussing this whole thing with a, a Confederate type, and you're saying, the South is going to rise again, and you said, I, uh, are you think you're going to win the elections? He said, oh, yeah, I know we are, because we got the new vote. So they know exactly what they're doing. It's there's uh, nothing. Um, it's just plain cynical. So did you enjoy the film? It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I recommend it to everybody. In fact, uh, this program that's on right now, Corporations and Democracy, is a project of Alliance for Democracy, and Alliance for Democracy is a co-producer of your film. Yes, uh, it is. Yes, thank you for that for disclosure, that. and I thank <laughs> Alliance for Democracy because I got to tell you. That's what it takes. It's an alliance not for Democrats, but alliance for democracy. And that's very, very important. It, yes, look, it, we have to. I don't care whether you're Green Party, blue, red, orange, purple, don't matter. If we lose democracy, we lose it all. Like right now, for example, in Georgia, um, you know, there's uh, the a judge just temporarily uh, blocked the uh, the Georgia law saying all abortions after six weeks are banned, which mm -hmm. is an effective total, is close to a total ban, of course, uh, as a practical matter. And, um, you know, again, voting is what makes that difference. In Georgia, I saw all of those guys, you'll see at the beginning of the film, these guys, they call them reenactors because you're not allowed to run around in white sheets. So instead, you dress up like Doc Holliday with a gun or you dress up as a Confederate soldier with a gun. It's all these kind of violent Southern images that they portray. And, um, um, you know, but th those four guys, like this one guy who was proud, he was holding the Georgia Republic flag. You know, they're independent of their great Confederate flag for the state of Georgia. And one thing I could tell you is I happen to, I know more about that guy. He works at a poultry factory. He's a chicken plucker. Mm -hmm. He undoubtedly works for minimum wage. And I can tell you right now, given his condition, he doesn't have health care. And his governor would not uh, accept expanded Medicare, Medicaid money. Now, understand that that's all paid for by the federal government, or I think now it's down to 90%. And yet Brian Kemp won't put in the couple shekels to get all that. He wouldn't even accept it when it was 100% free from the federal government. In other words, these, so the only thing that these people have, they've got their Confederate flag, but, what, but if they had a taste of democracy, not Democrats, but democracy, that might change everything. So there's all these rules. So we, and, and in addition, we go through the history of Brian Kemp, whose family he's able to cover over was um, the first family to bring enslaved Africans to Georgia. Most people don't realize. In fact, I got to tell you, I didn't know until I started researching for this film with my great uh, director, David Ambrose, that Georgia prohibited slavery. Georgia was one of the only places in America where slavery was outlawed before the American Revolution. And then Brian Kemp's family, at that time under the name Habersham and Roswell, uh, those guys uh, brought it, was able to cut a deal with the King of England to bring in Africans in chains to 
basically to show them how to plant rice. The Africans were the kind of high-tech workers of the time because they, they knew how to plant rice, and certainly the British didn't. And so they came in and they planted rice, and then they were forever prisoners. A lot of them, by the way, didn't know that they were coming in as slaves. A lot of them thought that they were signing contracts mm -hmm. to come to a new land and ended up forever in chains. We did so enjoy that, your, uh, your uh, characterization of, of Kemp. It was quite amazing. He's this very patrician character, uh, slaver from a family of history of slavery uh, owners. But uh, in his ads, he's all, you know, like, here I am with my big truck, and here I am with my big gun, and here I am with my big chainsaw. <laughs> it was, people are really going to enjoy the film because it's, it's so well done, and you just really... Um, develop the characters of all the people that are involved in and some of it makes you want to cry because of the people yes. that fought for the right to vote and are now having to do it all over again mm -hmm. well that's the interesting thing yeah so it's you're right there's parts where you gotta laugh you have to laugh you have to, if you don't laugh at doc holiday i mean but on the other hand he's he stopped you know he stopped four thousand people from voting um and you know black soldiers and so then and then when you get the full story then uh, there's not many people who can make it through without tearing up on this one. And, uh, in fact, we just had one of the reasons uh, we were able to go national, some help from Jamie Foxx, who, who showed up. Uh, we had a, uh, a Hollywood showing. Uh, the film is produced by George DiCaprio. Uh, many of you know his, his son, obviously. He's, George is a great documentarian. Leo's been very helpful. And, um, you know, so we, what we do is we, this is... It's heartbreaking. We had uh, the major Gamaliel Turner, the guy who lost his vote career. You know, he was really upset. He's a real warrior, not this tinker toy warrior like Doc Holliday here. And his family, his father was the co-founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy. And they won the vote. In fact, they actually won the vote. His uncle, uh, when Herman, when uh, Eugene Talmadge um used that clan tactic this vigilante game to stop black voters get himself elected the fbi was about to arrest him the, unlike our justice department today franklin roosevelt and then and then harry truman's justice department did not think this was legal and they're about to arrest him but he drank himself to death so he avoided the indictment and so black people were then allowed to register including major turner's uncle joe who uh, was, uh, by the way, at our Atlanta showing. And Uncle Joe is 95, 96, I think. And uh, he was allowed to vote in 1946. And then his uh, nephew in 2021 is denied the right to vote. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're literally in some ways going backwards but we can go forwards if we expose these guys. So go see Vigilante Movie. Go to VigilanteMovie.com, VigilanteMovie.com or GregDallas.com, and it's, hey, the price is right. It's free. Mm -hmm. You're allowed to donate. To, to You can be like Alliance for Democracy and help out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm more than happy, and if you don't, that's cool, too. I want you to see the film, and I want you, certainly, to get it out to all your friends around the country. Because, you know what? We're all Georgia in some way. Even California. If you think that there ain't no Jose Crow or Jim Crow in California, you're dead wrong. I did an investigation of California voting. I mean, 
I'm going to tell you right now for the Guardian. I was you know, for those who don't know me, Greg Pallast. I was a Guardian and BBC television reporter, the Rolling Stone, and I did an investigation for the Guardian of California voting. And let me tell you, Bernie Sh- Sanders was shafted out of his win in 2016 uh, by a massive amount by the systems used in California. Here, the Democrats don't go after Republicans. There aren't many. Rather, they tend to go, well, except up near you, I suppose. Um, but the uh, it's mostly Democrats go after other Democrats. And uh, so uh, Republicans go after Democrats, and then Democrats go after Democrats. So it's <laughs> so you see how we end up with the government we have. In California, we call it James Crow. <laughs> yes, yes, James Crow Systems Analyst. So if we're, you ever, we're about yeah. out of time. we got to uh, yeah. wrap this up. Um, it's sure. such a wonderful thing to have you on the air here and we we didn't take any calls there was somebody trying to get through but um there was just too much to say and you say it so well and we want to repeat the the places you can find all of this it's greg palace's p-a-l-a-s-t you can also find greg on pat on facebook if that's the easiest way to do it greg palace yes, on facebook me. and you'll find all the links there to the movie and the and to the website and uh, let me slip in a question nonetheless um what's the chance for some of this being corrected for the runoff because there's a month's time so although the one month used to be two months i believe before this bill went through is that right we got some uh like we're going to have a big showing uh i'm going back for gwinnett county which Mm -hmm. is a suburb uh of atlanta with a million people in it it's Mm -hmm. a diverse county and they looked at my material and they rejected 31,000 challenges. 31,000 challenges in one county. They rejected them all. I was happy to say that they cited some of my work. And we're going to have a showing in Gwinnett. So the idea is we're going to get and we have a site set up. So there, there's a way to fight back. But uh, this is just tells you one thing that's really important if you don't get it already. They're stealing your vote because it's worth it. So don't let them do it. You can fight your way back. It's not easy. Major Turner did. It wasn't easy. He actually had to hire big shot lawyers to go to federal court to get his vote counted. Mm -hmm. You won't have to do that. But know your rules. Know your rights. And for gosh sakes, you can get this word into anyone you know in Georgia, in the South. This vigilante game is happening all over. There's other games happening in georgia we don't even have time to go through Mm -hmm. but if you watch the film vigilante again vigilante movie.com write that down right now in fact type it in right now go there right now get it you know (laughs) download it for free capital v capital v V for vigilante and capital m for a movie yes (laughs) okay work i uppercase lowercase or gregpalace.com i will see you there Thanks for having me Super on here. You guys are great, and thank you to the Alliance for Democracy. And thank and you for thank doing you. all this work. Uh, you you uncovered it all, and the press had just just smoothed it over. And, and as Greg Palace says, it's not voter suppression, it's voter theft. <laughs> well, <laughs> be careful, because you'll get pulled off YouTube if you <laughs> use the T word. Um, so we'll just say that they are... Gunning after your democracy. All right. I'll see you at vigilantemovie.com. Bye. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, Greg.
For the second half hour of today's program, we have the pleasure of talking with Judith Ehrlich, the director of the documentary movie, The Boys Who Said No, Draft Resistance and the Vietnam War. Judith will be in the area this weekend and will attend the showing of her movie Saturday evening at the Anderson Valley Grange, which will include Q&A with her and the audience. So, let's discuss The Boys Who Said No, Draft Resistance and the Vietnam War. Judith Ehrlich. Welcome to Corporations and Democracy. And let me up the volume. Okay, let's try that again. Welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Thank you for having me with you today. So I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to thank my friends at the uh, Philo Apple Farm, which is why I happen to be coming up to the Grange, which I've done with my other films in the past, The, <clears throat> the Most Dangerous Man in America and The Good War and Those Who Refused to Fight It. We screened both of those at the Grange Hall, thanks to Karen and Tim up at the Apple Farm. Yeah, the Bates and the Apple Farm, and, yeah, and Philo, this is, this is we'll, well we thank them too. Napa Hot. Yeah. We thank them for uh, introducing you to us, and uh, Eric Labowitz and a lot of people in the Valley are quite excited about this. Uh, uh, you've done a lot of of movies that are really, you know, of great social import. Um, you did one about the Good War and then the Vietnam, the, the Good War and the Bad War, I guess you could say. Um, what are some of the similarities between dealing with World War II and, and, and some of the differences between World War II and Vietnam when you were putting your two films together? Well, you know, I mean, every I think when I started out doing the film about World War II, I didn't actually realize there were resistors in World War II. I thought it started in Vietnam, but it, the, the more I became embedded in this subject, which I have been for many years now, it, it, there's always been resistors. I mean, it sets, you know, conscientious objectors and resistors, and the, the good war it was much more difficult to resist the good war or to be a conscientious objector. Even Quakers and Mennonites and, and members of peace churches were really, um, you know, thrown out of their neighborhoods and friendship groups and everything for resisting, even though that was the teaching of their church. Um, and there were many fewer people who resisted. So that was, and, and conscientious objectors were sent to what were called civilian public service camps. And those were, um, uh, it turned out in the end that the government didn't like that idea because they sent 7,000 of them to spend the war years talking to each other and becoming even more clear about their pacifism. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they came back and caused a lot of trouble. I mean, they started the co-op movement they started the anti-apartheid movement in the u.s and and many of them went to africa and worked mm -hmm. and they they did um they're just an endless array of of um of very progressive things that came out of that five years of being locked together talking about pacifism and talking about war and they became they really were the sort of vanguard of the anti-war movement up until the vietnam war when they influenced and mentored a lot of the Vietnam War resistors. So they play a part, like Dave Dellinger, for example, who you may remember from the Chicago 7, <clears throat> he was um, in prison during World War II and then became a mentor to the resistors during the Vietnam War, as did many of them. But I think a lot of what both of these those films are about and what the 
the what I really was interested in showing in the most the good the, sorry I'm getting the film fixed up the voice who <laughs> said no was that all of these movements build on each other's shoulders in the way that you know the women's movement now the feminist movement builds on the earlier feminist movement and that the war these war resistors really built their movement on the civil rights movement they were mentored and, and inspired by the success of the civil rights movement and many of them went south a lot of the leadership of the resistance movement including david harris who we focus on in the film had gone south and worked <clears throat> during freedom summer many of them and also in other in other capacities as um volunteers in the south yeah, I think some of the students that were active in the anti-war movement against Vietnam, they learned some of those realities of the world when they were working for the vote in the South. For the yes, and they saw, you know, I think the, the kind of seeing something, really seeing it in front of you is really different than reading about it or seeing it on TV or whatever. They went south and they saw how it worked. And they really, and they worked with very sophisticated organizers in the south who've been doing it for quite a while. Those successes didn't come easily and they took a lot of really sophisticated organizing. And I think they learned from them and they they were young. I mean, the, this movement was started by 18-year-olds for the most uh -huh. part, 18 to 20-year-olds. And but they had been, they'd seen how it was done, and they took it to heart, and they really did, and they got Martin Luther King involved with them in the movement, and Muhammad Ali was part of, you know, was a supporter of theirs, and as they were of him, and so there was a lot of, of um, interaction between the civil rights movement and this resistance movement, and they really did model their movement on the civil rights movement, on the nonviolence. What One of the things that we really try to talk about in this film is the principle of nonviolence and how that is a really powerful um, element. And it, uh, there's a um, conversation between, <coughs> excuse me, between Mark Rudd, who was one of the leaders of the Weather Underground, and David Harris, who was one of the leaders of the resistance movement. And it was really, it was a great, it was a great afternoon with the two of them duking it out with each other. But basically, Mark is one of the, he's really the only one of the Weather Underground who sort of recanted his position of, of, not, of violence as a, as a means to make change. There's a and lot of... Sorry, go ahead. No, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I thought you, you threw with that thought. There is uh, so much of the the spirit of the times involved in your in your film, and it's like really so interesting. And and like you just mentioned, one of the scenes that I appreciated the most was the the discussion between Mark Rudd, with a, who was one of the founders of the Weather Underground, and and well, you know, protests don't work. We need to take direct action. And and um, and and David Harris, who was saying, uh, no, as soon as you you uh, inter introduce any kind of action like that, like breaking things and setting on fire, uh, then immediately you're discredited by the larger population. And uh, it was interesting to see in their older years, the two having that discussion, and Mark uh, Rudd, the fiery revolutionary, agreeing with the pacifist uh, David Harris, says, yes, I was wrong. I, I, I didn't get it back then. I think that uh, what I've learned about nonviolence from making a number of films about it is that 
it actually works. I mean, it's really powerful. And if it's done, you know, conscientiously and, but it's not easy. I mean, and I think John Baez says that in the film, you know, they had hoped to make this stop the draft week in October of 1967 was going to be a whole week of nonviolence. Well, after the first day, it really sort of changed and became, you know, people started duking it out with the police in the streets and it was no longer nonviolent. But as she says when she gets out of prison is that, um, or out of jail, that um, it's a lot harder to do nonviolence and it takes real discipline and it takes a lot of thought and, and a lot of kind of conscientiousness and that's hard to gather thousands of people who will do that, but they did in the end and the, their sort of stance of nonviolence and their willingness to go to court to put themselves on the line what's what's this film's a very specific um group of people because people say what about the draft dodgers who went to canada what about the people who had conscientious objection or were for f or whatever who didn't go for any number of reasons what i'm looking at in this film is really these this particular group of people who stood up and said i not only do I refuse to fight, I reject the the um, conscription system, and I'm willing to go to prison to because of that witness that I believe strongly. And, and let me emphasize then that that uh, the movie is about draft resistors, not draft dodgers. So right. there was plenty of draft dodging, and people that went to Canada, that was their choice. But the movie is not about them. The movie is about the young people who said, "Okay, take me to jail." Or give me my day in court, and I'll tell you what I really think. And uh, before a jury and a judge, and whatever is decided, I'll take it. Yeah. And 4,000 of them did go to prison and served hard time in prison. Mm -hmm. um, I have no objection to the draft Dodgers. I tried to make a film about them earlier, but I couldn't get it funded. But, um, <laughs> and, and there were some great stories, one being one of the draft Dodgers went to Sweden and became part of the royal family of Sweden. And, you know, and, and, <laughs> of, and in Canada were very influential. So I have no problem with them. I have no problem mm -hmm. with conscientious objectors. I've been, I was on the board of the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors. But this, was, this is a particular slide that I think had been completely ignored historically. And I guess that's been sort of my effort is to, I, I love archival footage. I've been drowning in it for many years and I wanted to really find the best examples of these this group of people. And luckily there were a bunch of filmmakers who thought they were really cool. So there were like five independent films about these characters. So I was able to illustrate this very specifically. Like there's one story of a guy who comes off the bus in LA at the, at the induction center and he's handed a leaflet and a flower and he goes home and um, he when he walks in, he suddenly realizes he can't do it. He won't step across the line. He said, I don't know who is more surprised, me or the guy who was giving the oath. But so he doesn't go in the army. He goes home and reads the pamphlet and becomes a full-time organizer against the war. But he, I have footage of him getting the flower coming off the bus because somebody was shooting that day in L.A. doing a film about the resistance. So there's a lot of, it was not hard to find the material. It was hard to sort through the material <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of hours of useful interesting stuff so we had had a full-time archivist for a year and my editor and i worked for a year and a half sorting through stuff and and cutting the film so it was uh, it was a big job but it was but it was fun well that's and, one of the things that you can appreciate watching um the boys who said no is how it built up and it snowballed and it built up more and more and more you can see that uh laid out in the film and so it, and uh, i think with 
Martin Luther King and Dr. Spock, the baby doctor, and then the, the Barrican brothers, the Catholic priest, that, that it started out as young men maybe in the university that wanted to be drafted and ended up as, as something that well, everybody could relate to. And women as well as men. And and um, I think I think that was and also I think what I learned watching was how it was very popular war at the beginning and it took a long time for that to shift and I mean I was in Berkeley I never thought it was popular at all <laughs> but in the rest of the universe it went on for many years being very popular so it was you know it was very slowly turned around because of not just because of these guys they were a vanguard of people who were most willing to take to take a risk and accept punishment but of course it was a mass movement of people out on the streets millions of people that did turn it around along with this these leading people who were willing to to go to prison and by the end of one thing that's really interesting i thought was they were very tactical for such young men that they and women that they were really tactical they really did go okay if we absolutely fill the um courts and make it impossible for the courts to function they're not going to be able to send us to prison and that's basically what they did they made it impossible to send them to prison and they clogged up the courts and finally the court system just went okay you win we're not going to do <laughs> we're just not going to do this anymore because we can't keep up with it there were so many of them willing to be indicted and willing to go to prison that it uh, and that's mentioned in the in the film uh, the, the first judge in one particular part of the country i forget which but uh the first judge who said I've had it. I'm not going to, you know, yeah, send any one of these people to jail. That, that guy who went before that judge, he thought he was so brilliant that the judge <laughs> was convinced by him. Then he realized the judge had decided before he even walked in that he wasn't going to send any more of his sisters <laughs> to prison. But he didn't realize that until much later. He interviewed him later and found that out. And also there was a there's an interesting there's a book called The Resister by Bruce Dancis and um he talks about the fact that they didn't really realize how much impact they had till much later and he had you know he read reports that were from the late seventies, early eighties, I believe, that made it clear that they had had a major impact and changed the and, and basically changed the policy and, and we do for sure the draft ended. But I don't think they knew that they had been as influential in ending the draft as they had been. So, I mean, I think that's it's really the only example that I'm aware of, of a mass movement that actually changed government policy from, you know, pulled the switch on the draft and ended the draft because of the resistance. Yeah, I think the movie did a really good job. You used some kind of graphs that showed how it swelled the volume of resistance with... Uh, starts out very small and then pretty soon it's uh, a half a million people re resisting the draft and but then you get so many people that are re resisting the draft and, and that it's the floods the system like you said so there's much fewer that are indicted out of all of those that resisted which is breaking the law being, being criminals uh, 10,000 in, indicted and then only 4,000 actually going to prison and then finally the judge who just says get out of my courtroom it's dismissed <laughs> yeah, and the whole atmosphere changed one thing we really tried to do was show how ordinary people were doing this it wasn't just all the David Harris's, the Stanford president of the student body, which he was, and married to Joan Baez during the course of this, um, which was a great story. And I love 
I love a love story. And even if what you're talking about is like Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, which was my earlier film, that the love story between Patricia and Dan is really critical to how we told that story. And in this case, I really wanted, there was great footage of Joan Baez, of course, and great singing. And so she's such a wonderful character, and she was very cooperative and happy to work with us, and as was David. And so, and they're still good friends. So they were able to really contribute this personal center of the story but this story it's about a lot of regular people who stood up and and were courageous and did what they did to try to stop the war and put their bodies on the line so it's you know it's about there was a lot of debate this film was made with a committee and when they said well look we're gonna have a committee we went oh no 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 <laughs> <laughs> having been in lots of committees and it turned out they were fabulous and they were all very knowledgeable and very supportive and you know i couldn't i couldn't have made it without the committee mm -hmm. and you know they were just had a hawk eye on everything and fact checking and just making sure everything was really accurate and had the right attitude and they really wanted to make sure there were plenty of stories and i think there are plenty of stories of regular people and how they faced this and how what their decisions were and what became of them but we didn't in the in the good war we ended it with a thing of um explaining what happened to the people afterwards and how influential they were which we could have done with this i mean one of them won the nobel prize for mine anti-landmine work in southeast asia i mean they did all kinds of things afterwards but what we did instead was made a link between that movement and the current movement um for just uh, for um, anti-war and and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and Occupy and and all of the the active movements that are happening right now. And we happened to the week we locked picture was the week that George um, oh blank on his name of course the, the George uh, Floyd. Floyd. Thank you. <laughs> the week that Floyd, George Floyd was killed was the week we locked pictures. So we were able to get those, include those images of the protests. So it's, it really brings it up to date. And, and once again, reminds us that movements build on other movements. And we're, you know, we're, we're, we're the one. It's like, I feel like everybody who was involved in this is like, oh, call me. I'm happy to help you do whatever. We're not, we're not at the front anymore. But it's nice to have people who are at the back and can give some advice and support and, and encourage people to think that they, it's not just getting out there and causing trouble, but you can actually win, which is a wonderful message, I think, about this film is they actually won. And there's a, not too many of those examples. It's a wonderful feedback loop, too, because you have feature uh, Daniel Ellsberg saying that he was inspired to do the right thing by what he saw the young people doing. Yes. And, you know, I, one thing I'm proud of myself is that Daniel Ellsberg, yes, was inspired by Randy Keeler, who was one of the resistors. And we tell that story in The Most Dangerous Man in America as well. But also, um, Edward Snowden saw the film I made about Daniel Ellsberg, wow. and that inspired him to do what he did. So there's those examples, you know, in real life that people are inspired by what they see. And in a film or in a conversation or, you know, in a meeting or whatever, and actually find the courage to be the conscientious person they'd like to be but without the example it's hard to do that 
without knowing that actually people have done it and succeeded at it. That it's and also the thing I've enjoyed so much with these all the films I've made on the subject or related subjects is that these people are extremely joyful human beings. I mean it's like they did this very courageous thing. They went to prison and they're like the most delightful, positive thinking people you'd ever want to meet. I, there's not one of them that you wouldn't want to spend an evening with. And so it, it's really um it's that's inspiring to me too it doesn't break their spirit it really you know expands their spirits yeah if the attitude of the of the people that you that you feature is it really is endearing you know they know that they're going to be locked up and but they've had to think about it real long and hard and then they decide they have to and i i think at this time too there was pictures uh coming through of what was actually going on over in vietnam to the vietnamese people and uh, i've heard people say that uh, that's what got some of the the sleepier part of the population to take a look at it I like that sleepier part. No, I think, you know, and it's true. And I think that young people today have been, we have censored the reality of war for them. Um, and they haven't seen what we grew up seeing on TV every night. I mean, we really saw the war. We saw the war in its glorious, most unacceptable elements on the TV news. And and it's a lot of people just really reacted negatively to that and thought, I'm not going to do that. You know, a lot of people did, and they probably didn't do it happily, but they did it because they were being told they had to. But this, it really inspired the TV, the experience of seeing what they saw on TV did motivate many, many people to refuse to participate. So they did manage to end the war in Vietnam, but then the U.S. turned around <laughs> and ended up in Afghanistan and had to go through pretty much the same experience of being bested by the indigenous people there, with all, despite the superpowers. So maybe there could have been more learned that wasn't. Well, I don't think we changed the minds of weapons um, makers to did find another occupation mm -hmm. and i think there's still too much money to be made at making weapons and actually i was gonna if you don't mind just mention this another thing that i'm just finishing with daniel ellsberg which is going to be up on a website uh diffusenuclearwar.org oh yes please tell us yeah it'll be up uh in a couple weeks and um it's uh basically a, an animated podcast of a five taken from a five-hour interview i did with dan dan last spring but it's about ways that we can reduce the risk of nuclear war because he was a nuclear war planner one of the top nuclear war planners before he um released the pentagon papers and he's been a devoted anti-war activist for the past 70 years and he knows a lot about it he knows he's one of these guys you know everyone else is sitting on the beach and dan's reading national security papers well you know <laughs> waiting for the next wave I mean, he loves to body surf but he loves national security papers so i mean he's really um devoted his life to learning everything about this subject and he's just a walking encyclopedia at 93 the most amazing memory and access to information of anyone i've ever known and just continues to be <laughs> quite phenomenal um anyway so i'm really happy to come up to the grange and and share this with you and hope that um i mean we found i just was up in uh, uh friday harbor washington at a film festival up there they invited us up and um 
I, I was surprised after the film I had so many people who came up to me and started crying and just men who had resisted in one way or the other and whatever way they were they felt comfortable with but it was I think it's a very moving film for people who have been were part of our generation and you know and have experienced what people experienced during the Vietnam War who didn't want to participate and you know many people sacrificed in many different ways but I think these these are kind of the vanguard of those who were willing to do the most and suffer the most and as you, you said, the, there is a lasting legacy of the abolishment of the draft, but there's also some drawbacks to that, I, I guess, because now we have an economic draft and, and military contractors. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, I mean, we've got a lot of mercenaries fighting our wars now, which, well, along with enlisted people, but there's a shocking percentage of people who are paid to fight our wars, which I guess is sort of a, maybe a good thing over people <laughs> wanting to fight <laughs> you have to pay them to fight now pay, pay them a lot more i don't think that's a good thing but there is talk which is interesting it's going to come up before congress this next it should be in the next uh, session of congress to include women in registration we don't have a draft now we haven't since 1980 but we do have registration and for some silly reason it continues to go on and waste money doing that because i can't imagine we're ever going to have a draft we don't need mass bodies to fight wars anymore we've got too much technology to fight wars and but i but I, somehow they like hanging that over people's heads and they are now i think it, it, there's a pretty good chance women are going to start having to register for the draft too and we, I, we're following that issue and seeing how that's going to play out but there's a lot of support for that it's like a lot of feminist organizations want it which is you know mm-hmm. i find con- it i mean i guess it's not contradictory if you want it to be equal women should be drafted too but i don't want anyone to be drafted yeah so, though. Uh, yeah it would be and equal be- go ahead I don't. We don't need to be equal killers. Equal. Right. <laughs> we're allowed to be killers. Okay. Well, we can be equal non-killers. Have have, have there be nobody doing this? Yeah. That's exactly what I'm hoping comes out of this in the end. So, you know, there's all the there's yeah. There's a lot of things that aren't going well. I was really I got to listen to Greg Palace before, and and that's something I've been very concerned about. And what's going on with the vote and having worked so hard for that issue and to now see it overturned um hearing about martin Luther king's uh, cousin being turned away at the polls that was it looks like that's what yeah, hard to believe isn't it about. yeah so but, I, um, I guess the next step is uh we're just about out of time is to okay. um, uh, streamline the movie for a wider audience and how, how can people support the movie oh well we're now um you can you can go to our website, which is boyswhosaidno.com, and we're going to be tracking how the film is uh, expands its um, uh, availability. It's now available with our educational distributor, Bullfrog Films, and they're mainly what we're trying to do now is just get community screening. So sort of like the Grand Range Hall, yeah. anywhere you know, you know, some group that once I know you were talking about maybe the Ukiah Veterans for Peace that, and there's lots of small groups that want to show it to their and. and and that's actually a wonderful way to see it, I think, is with other like-minded people. And bring, we just showed it, I just sort of popped into a screening down in Monterey at the Veterans for Peace. And they had a lot of young people there, which was great, in Oceanside. And I think there's a, there's a lot of interest in the subject among young people who are, you know, learning how to organize and doing a great job. And um, anyway, so that's, that's a one available way. We're working with a team in 
Paris and L.A. who are trying to distribute it more widely, and they've been working with George Clooney, and we're hopeful mm, that we'll get some bigger distribution of the film in the near future. Okay. But right now, stay check out the website. It'll let, keep you up to date. Okay, so that's boyswhosaidno.com, and thank you be, uh, for being with us, Judith Ehrlich. Thank you. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it, and hope to see you at the Grange. Yeah. And you've been listening Saturday to, night, yeah. That's Saturday night at the Anderson Valley Grange, 7 p.m. this Saturday night, the 19th. This has been I Corporations. Pumpkin pie. Sorry. Uh, that sounds good. <laughs> okay, well, thanks for being our guest, and this has been Corporations of Democracy. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. And consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.